Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Ben Bristow. Ben is the co-director of Paul Bristow Associates, a firm based in North Wales which specialises in print, design and manufacturing of bespoke textile products. Ben, very warm welcome to you today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the program. No, nice to meet you. Uh, speak to you, Scott. Thank you. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Ben. Now, um, the purpose of uh, this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it is fair to say that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic, no less, and business leaders, leaders of governments, communities having to feel their way through what is ultimately an unprecedented crisis. Um, so for somebody working within your industry, how has it been navigating the last few weeks and months? Because I can imagine it has posed some incredible challenges. Yeah, absolutely, Scott. It has it has been a really difficult um, period, I think, for, for for not just leaders, of course, but all stakeholders in businesses. Um, and I think when when we talk about leadership, that I don't think you can talk about leadership and not consider who you're leading, whether it be in an organisation um, or from the government's perspective, obviously the, the wider population. So, yeah, incredibly difficult. Um, I think in our sector, um, in kind of textiles manufacturing in the UK, we were already a sector that were facing incredibly tough challenges and have been facing incredibly tough challenges for some time. You know, the, the, the continued um, pressure on pricing from, from offshore production is, is obviously a, an, an obvious um, problem, but just the general performance of the, the, the high street in general as well and, and trying to find uh, market opportunities as a textile manufacturer ha- ha- has been difficult. But um, COVID-19 has obviously changed the whole dynamic. Um, and I think, you know, from a, from a market perspective, we, we as an individual, as, as, a, as a company, have lost the vast majority of our turnover effectively overnight. Um, a lot of museums and art galleries that we service are obviously closed. Um, a lot of the products we make are, is, is gift orientated, so it, it's been quite catastrophic from that perspective. And then, from a leadership perspective, for our for all the, the stakeholders within our business, that then poses some very difficult um, challenges. You know, the, the the government support we've had through furlough schemes, and more locally in Wales, there's been some um, really valuable grant funding for, for businesses affected like ours. Um, but of course, they're only going to go so far to securing people's long-term futures and I think that's one of the biggest single challenges we face is coming through this with an infrastructure in place both people-wise and and machinery-wise that is going to enable us to take advantage of of the the, the rebound that I'm sure will come. Um, How quickly it comes is obviously the the million-dollar question Mm. Um, and you, 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 you work that all the way through to the actual individuals themselves who, whose, whose jobs are fundamentally affected by this. And it, it's a hugely concerning time. Um, the, 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 to lose your job in, a, in, in any kind of climate is, is, a, is a frightening experience. But to lose it when there's unprecedented um, job losses going on around you, you know, it doesn't seem you go a day without picking up a news headline of another firm laying off thousands of jobs. So, um, yeah, an incredibly challenging period for, for, for all leaders, I think. 
to make sure that they are treading the, the, the very delicate line between assuring the long-term future of their organizational business whilst also understanding the human impact this is having on all stakeholders and staff members. So, yeah, very challenging. Mm. And for the benefit of those tuning into this, we are recording on the 25th of June 2020. And this is the morning where Royal Mail has actually announced that it's going to be cutting 2000 management jobs of its own. So it links very nicely into what you said there, Ben, another news headline of a firm. Um, Well, of course, the Postal Service, in fact, now laying off thousands of people. Um, You also mentioned the fact um, that um, business has had to be adaptable during this time. Strategies and priorities have been changed due to COVID-19. And in a way, it's also the same for leaders of businesses as well, because people fundamentally react differently to different situations, let alone a crisis. So people management for business leaders today has been incredibly important because as people have had to adapt to perhaps remote working or continuing to work on sites under new safety procedures, some people will be able to sort of get on with that without much complaint, whereas it will take more close people management and providing of reassurance to certain individuals as well. So for leaders, it's been incredibly challenging in that respect from just that mental health and well-being point of view. Yeah, well, the, the irony, of course, is it requires a, a, a socially distant, close level of management. So, yeah, it, it has been challenging. Um, we, we're very fortunate here um, as, an, as, a, as an organization ourselves because we're, we're a relatively small um, family business and we, we employ upwards of 40 to 50 people at, at seasonal highs. Um, but the, the, the kind of majority of our staff at the moment that are working are and have been working with us for a very long time. Um, and they're, they're as kind of passionate about keeping this business afloat as as we are as directors and, and family family owning directors. Um, but yeah, obviously providing um, social distancing that works is highly important. Those that have been able to work remotely for us have been given that opportunity to, and I think with varying degrees of success, um, getting getting uh, but, but as we evolve through that and, and new routines you know we, we hear this phrase the new normal becomes more normal mm. um, I think we are finding that, that we are it, as much as anything managing our own expectations of, of how that will work and how we can get good good efficiency out of it um, is, is developing but because the majority of what we do and the majority of our staffing is manufacturing and, and, and so on there, it is it is almost impossible for us to create a viable um, working environment where people can work from home. So, um, you know, a lot of the measures we've been putting in place are about making sure that we have one-way systems, we have um, any kind of uh, kind of crunch point, to want for a better phrase, where, you know, doors, kitchens, bathrooms, that we're, we're putting together sensible and actually um, manageable processes with the teams that there are working to make sure people feel comfortable and safe. I think that was my personal main agenda here was that the staff that were back on site felt safe to be here and felt that therefore they could concentrate on working and and being um, productive for the company without that kind of um, backdrop of concern. Um, so, you know, that that's, I suppose, has happened in large part with um, collaboration with the staff as much as it has following guidance that's been coming through from from other organisations and local government and indeed national government. Um, 
but but one of the lucky uh, elements we had, we, we actually took on a new unit just prior to all of this taking, you know, actually becoming a, the kind of the new normal. So we have actually had floor space to expand into that has made that, from our perspective, an easier challenge to to, to face. I, I You know, there's a large amount of sympathy coming from, from my chair to businesses that just simply the only option they have to maintain social distancing is to cut output. Um, and if you have a, 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 a viable order book right now, um, you, you're incredibly fortunate, I, I, I think. And if you're then also having to take the, the bitter pill of having to cut your output because you can't socially distance whilst maintaining that order book, it's, it's just a very, very difficult situation for lots of organisations. And I don't actually believe there are golden bullets to solve these problems. Mm. I think it all is going to come from collaboration with all stakeholders, being flexible and, and understanding of different people's personal situations, different people's expectations of their working environment, and very much hopefully gathering the, the, the team mentality in a business to, to pull through as best as one can. Um, yeah. <laughs> when we think about leadership, um, I think of transparency and clarity being two very important qualities that a leader ought to have personally. And there's been a great deal of debate about government guidelines and just how clear they've been during this time. And with yourselves being based in North Wales as well, there's also the issue of regulatory divergence to contend with as well, the fact that restrictions are being lifted at a different pace to what's happening in England, for example. Um, have you been satisfied throughout the pandemic thus far that you've been very aware exactly of what's been expected of you and you continue to be so as we move through the pandemic? Um, it, 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 it's a very good question because the, 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 the short answer is no. I think at times there has been um, a huge amount of ambiguity to the advice and guidance and um, you know, I, I, I think some of the earlier announcements were even being misreported by leading news firms live as to the meaning of them. And I think centrally back to the initial lockdown announcement that, 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 that the Prime Minister gave us, um, you know, there was a sense of ambiguity there that really concerned us in the initial stages. Having said that, that became clearer very quickly as to what was expected and what wasn't. And I think in the grand scheme of things and with an overall view on things, I, I, I think it's been handled um, quite well. From the perspective of devolution and, um, you know, the Welsh government has its, its own jurisdiction and its own, uh, own um, political agendas. And I think... I. I I have a huge amount of confidence in, in, in the Welsh Government um, and from Business Wales, that's an organisation set up through, through Welsh Government, have been incredibly supportive to my business prior to this as well as during this situation. So, um, I, I, you know, I, I, could, I could probably fill your whole podcast with, with, with praise for that. Um, but having said that, I, I don't know if it's just a cynical element of my mind, but I do feel like there's a certain element of politicising these agendas. And... For me personally, I would feel much more comfortable if we acted as one nation with regards to how we respond to COVID-19 and that um, devolved government and national government, Westminster government, were able to present more of a united front. I, I, that, 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 but that's a personal 
uh, thing because from uh, on uh, leading a, a, a smaller business, particularly a business that's so close to the border, it does throw up so many little idiosyncratic challenges mm-hmm. where we have certain staff that live in the in, in England, other staff that are living in Wales. We we, we are making uh, face coverings. Um, for quite a few businesses at the moment, to the government regulation in the from from Westminster that is uh, you know different to what the Welsh government is now advising. And the, the, you know the the irony of that when we're actually a Welsh manufacturing company um, isn't lost on me. So yes, there is there is a there's a sense of frustration, but then at the same time, I think there has to be a sense of realism, pragmatism about this that. Um, there isn't one answer to these problems. There are many answers to these problems. Mm. And, uh, you know, devolution and, and Welsh government are well within their rights, as are the Scottish government and the Northern Irish government, to do as they think is right for, for, for their, their area of jurisdiction. So, yeah, a, a difficult situation. But, you know, in short, no, not everything has been as clear and as precise as one would like it to be. But, you know, the rational part of my brain completely understands why and basically is taking, we are taking the information we're provided with and we are doing what we think is right and correct with that information and processing and managing and dealing with it as best we can. Um, and I think ultimately that is all the government is asking us to do as leaders and individuals is just try and make the right decision for, for, for the whole um, the whole country as, as, as individuals, mm. if that makes sense. Certainly does, Ben. And um, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today, I'd just like to address uh, the future under the new normal that everybody's talking about. Um, considering um, that it's going to be a tremendous challenge over the uh, the next uh, year or so, adjusting to that, um, what do you envision for yourself and Paul Bristow Associates during that time? And what do you really hope to achieve as we do move through the pandemic and hopefully emerge from it? Yeah, we 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 we, we we've been quite hot subject of discussion this with us um, and, and, and have really worked hard to accelerate certain um, strategies that we already had in place that were perhaps lower down on the priority list. So to, to kind of amplify that or, or put, a, put an analogy together, we, we, we're a big believer as a British manufacturer in um, dropship and print-on-demand services for retailers, online retailers. Um, and the reason being if you can order something online and then we make it and send it directly to you, you, you as a British manufacturer are absolutely ring fencing that type of production as having to be done in the United Kingdom. It can't be done in China or, or in India because you, you can't physically move the product quick enough to the end user. Um, so that was a strategy that we had been working towards um, it, 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 over the last couple of years, but this opportunity of having a, an enforced pause on all other activity or all, the main bulk of our activity has meant that that's a strategy that, A, we'd wish we had ex- executed harder and faster earlier because obviously w- one sector that is still relatively buoyant is online retail. But this has given us the opportunity to accelerate those plans and, um, and, and, and move in that direction. And there's, a, there's, a, there's an enormous sense of confidence from my business and, and myself that that is the correct decision and over the course of the next few years will prove to be a very good decision for us. Um, that confidence, of course, is, isn't something one can uh, run a business on solely. 
we do need to see results from it, and and that's where we will we will sit with a careful and quiet optimism that that this restructuring that we've done towards this kind of online retailing um, manufacturing service will pay dividends over the coming time. Um, beyond that, you know, we're continuing with other strategic decisions that we we were prioritising on with regards to more sustainable, environmentally friendly textile production. So we were in the process of becoming organically certified by the Soil Association that was going to be a very key um, development for us because the problems around global warming and sustainability and environmentally sound manufacturing are not going away simply because we have a, a, a COVID-19 pandemic. And, and I think from our perspective, trying to combine British manufacturing, environmental and sustainability agendas and then more modern production and um, online manufacturing processes are going to be the absolute kind of three central pillars of our strategy moving forward and ones that we can be excited about. And that's incredibly encouraging excitement in the face of such uncertainty and such adversity for sure. And you know, Ben, given how informative it's actually been having you on the programme with us today to discuss this, I think it would actually be amazing from a listener's perspective to catch up and have you back on the programme at some point in the next year, just to gauge how those hopes are being borne out. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be delighted to. That'd be great, Scott. I would really um, hope as well that there's some good news to share at that point in time. It's a shame, of course, we don't have more time today or we could discuss it long into the afternoon, I'm sure. Um, but Ben, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme today. And I really do appreciate the time taken to do just that. And most importantly, until we do speak again, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. That's for sure. Absolutely. And uh, no, I appreciate the sentiment they've got. And of course, reciprocate it to, to all the listeners as well. Uh, I hope I hope we... Uh, we move through this successfully as a country. Thank you. Exactly. And for those tuning in, do look after yourselves, do stay safe and stay home where you can, because it really does make a difference in saving lives. Um, I was speaking there to Ben Bristow, the co-director of Paul Bristow Associates in North Wales. Um, Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew has become the director of cricket for both the England and Wales Cricket Board. Now, um, During his days as England skipper, however, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia. He also racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history during that time. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished speaking with Sir Andrew. That is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place. 
and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, 
Um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it. 
for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because... They, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the 
all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired Another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses number one to 
fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about, about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we're, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us yeah. last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, 
that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.